Good morning. Our reading this morning is taken from 2 Samuel chapter 11. And if you'd like to follow it in the church Bibles, you'll find it on page 314. So we're reading 2 Samuel chapter 11 and we're reading from verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman washing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. She came to him, I beg your pardon, and then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, at David's invitation. He ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front, where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know that they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth? 
Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Roger. Uh, That story is, apart from the story of David and Goliath, probably the best-known part of the books of Samuel. It's a compelling and interesting story in many different ways. But as we look at it this morning, we need to remember that it was written for a purpose. It was written to teach, to rebuke, uh, to, um, uh, to teach us to train us in righteousness. And we need, therefore, to pray that God would use it this morning in that way in us. By the way, what I've just quoted is a slightly corrupted quote from 2 Timothy 3.16. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us in righteousness through your word this morning. Amen. It's a bad start. I've managed to lose my place. No, there we go. Uh, The story of David and Bathsheba falls into two parts. Uh, The first comprises chapter 11, and it's what we're looking at today. Uh, It relates primarily to what David did. The second comprises chapter 12, and we're going to be looking at it in three weeks' time, and it relates primarily to God's response to David's actions. And in that second part, we can learn a lot of things about God's justice and about his grace, and it encourages us to accept and receive that justice and grace, and indeed to reflect it in our behaviour towards others. Uh, In contrast, today's passage, chapter 11, encourages us to consider David's actions, to reflect on our own lives, and to respond appropriately to what we find. Now, 
What that means is what I say today is going to be light in relation to God's grace and forgiveness. But, but, but don't worry, because after I've finished speaking, we are going to move into a time of communion. And that will give us an opportunity both to seek and receive that grace of God. But let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 11. Those of you who've been uh, listening to this sermon series, or those of you who already know what is in 2 Samuel, will recognise that until this point, things had been going rather well for David and for the Israelites generally. David was a God's anointed king. He was anointed by God to save his people from Philistine oppression. And he'd been successful in relation to that. And as a result, unsurprisingly, he was popular. Furthermore, God had promised him that his, uh, his house and his kingdom would be eternal. You see, as God's anointed uh, king and saviour, uh, David pointed forward to Jesus. But he, he, he only pointed forward. He was not the real thing. Uh, unlike Jesus, he was flawed. He was a sinful man. And he suddenly hit the buffers as we've heard. He proved to have feet of clay. And if you read on in 2 Samuel, you'll see that his problems mounted after this point. Of course, his attempted cover-up didn't work. Uh, I'm terribly sorry. I've managed to leap on in my own sermon. I do apologise. Um, I'm really sorry. Why have I got off to such a bad start here? Sorry. Right. Let's, let's have another go at that. His problems mounted, but it all started with sexual desire, didn't it? He saw a beautiful woman. He coveted her, and he committed adultery with her. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife says the Tenth Commandment, uh, along with other things. You shall not commit adultery, says the Seventh Commandment. David would have known those commandments, and yet he still willfully breached them. I don't know what's wrong with me at the moment. I cannot remember my own sermon. If you'll forgive me, I will look at my, my own notes. It's the worst uh, example of me not being able to do it that I've ever had. I do apologise. I'll pick it up in a minute. Right, so you'll notice that that passage doesn't say much about Bathsheba's behaviour. Now, some people suggest that she was a willing accomplice in all of that, even a temptress. At the other extreme, other people suggest that David raped her. But both of those extremes, and indeed all the views in between, read things into the Bible that aren't there. And we mustn't speculate. If Bathsheba's behaviour had been relevant to what the Bible wants to teach us, it would have told us about it. And it doesn't. Its focus is entirely on David. 
And David could not plead innocence before God on account of Bathsheba's behaviour. Of course, rape is even more serious than adultery. But adultery does not cease to be wrong because it's consensual. So why did David do what he did? Well, was it that he didn't care about God's law? Well, all we know about him suggests the contrary. But was it perhaps that he simply couldn't resist temptation? That seems more likely, and various things said in other parts of the book of Samuel suggest that he had a definite weakness in relation to this. But his subsequent behaviour suggests that he found a way of justifying himself in his own eyes. What was that? Perhaps he convinced himself that uh, these commandments didn't apply to him as king. Perhaps the fact that the people of his age accepted, even expected kings to behave in this way, contributed to that view. We, we, we don't know. And the fact is, it doesn't matter. Whatever David thought, what he did was terribly wrong. But that was David. What about us? We need to ask ourselves whether, like David, we are seriously breaching God's commands, seriously defying his will. Uh, like David, it may be to do with some sexual matter, but it may also be to do with other things, things to do with or related to or deriving from greed, for example, or from envy, or selfish ambition, or anger. We need to test our behaviour against God's will as revealed in the Bible. The Ten Commandments are the most obvious starting point, but think about the Sermon on the Mount. Galatians chapter 5, Ephesians 4 and 5, Colossians chapter 3 and many other passages. Like David, I hope that we really care about doing God's will and obeying his commandments. But, but we need to remember that, like David, uh, we are liable to succumb to temptation and follow evil desires. And we need to be careful to ensure that we spot when that is happening. And, and we need to beware against dreaming up self-justifications or belittling the seriousness of what we do. Do you know, I have sometimes caught myself in the past, almost without doing it consciously, dreaming up, working out how to justify some dubious behaviour that I've done. I just find myself thinking, well, I really did this and I really did that, almost working out how I'm going to articulate why I was in the right in spite of the fact it looks as though I was in the wrong. Now, it may be because I'm a lawyer, but I suspect that it's a more general tendency of us to seek self-justification. A long time ago, when I was at university, a Christian friend of mine was in an inappropriate relationship. 
and they had a justification for it, which one day they came out with totally unprompted by me. They were fooling themselves, although they didn't totally succeed, fortunately, because maybe 18 months or two years later, uh, this friend repented, and he then said to me that all the time he'd really known what he was doing was against what God's will, but, but these justifications had salved his conscience. We mustn't dream up self-justifications, and we mustn't belittle uh, God's law by expressly or impliedly saying or doing things that suggest that breaking it doesn't really matter. It does. Sadly, of course, David was not ready to examine himself and repent. And at that point, he lost control of what was going on. Take a look at verse 5. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying... I'm pregnant. What now? Well, like many, many people down the centuries, David then attempted a cover-up. He schemed in order to engineer a situation in which Uriah, and indeed all other people, would believe that the baby was Uriah's. It was a scheme of deception. Uh, He uh, hypocritically heaped gifts and other favours on Uriah. Oh, the Bible doesn't tell us of any express verbal lies, and there may have been none. But the whole scheme was based on a lie. And it was thereby, again, contrary to another one of God's express commandments. But of course it failed. In fact, it failed so spectacularly that 3,000 years later, millions of people around the world know about David's wrongdoing, including us. You see, God doesn't believe in cover-ups. In fact, the Bible ruthlessly exposes the wrongdoing of even the greatest of God's servants, Abraham. Gideon, Moses, the Apostle Peter, in addition to to David. Over time, many people in many situations have suggested that a cover-up might be in the interests of God's glory or honour or the cause of the gospel. That is nonsense. God is light and he brings things into the light. So we must never be involved in schemes to cover up our wrongdoing. Now that doesn't mean that we have to go around gratuitously telling everybody about everything that we've done wrong. But but, but it does mean that we need to admit our wrongdoing to God, and indeed, of course, first of all, to ourselves. And negatively, we must not be involved in devising stratagems to cover it up. And positively, we need to make sure that we are doing what's necessary to right the wrong we have done, even if 
that involves turning a spotlight on our wrongdoing. Our example ought to be Zacchaeus, after he had met Jesus. And if you don't know what I'm referring to there, can I urge you to take a look at Luke chapter 19 after the service? Once again, we need to examine ourselves. And if we find we have been involved or are involved in schemes of cover-up, we need to repent and act on that. Of course, however, David didn't do that. Uh, Uriah, what Uriah said should have brought him to his senses. Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander and my lord's men, my commander Joab, I'm sorry, and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do any such thing. Uriah's righteousness defeated David's scheme. But what Uriah said pointed to David's sin. He referred to the ark. The ark was a box. And what was in it? The Ten Commandments. The very commandments that David was breaching. But David didn't get the point. Instead, he simply implemented another scheme of cover-up this time shamefully involving getting Uriah drunk. But it didn't work, did it? Uriah may have been drunk, but God was not going to allow David's scheme to work, and so Uriah did not sleep with his wife. At this point, David had a choice. He could either accept defeat recognise that what he'd done was going to become public, realising that that could bring dreadful consequences for him, or he could do something more extreme, more, more, more uh, um, dreadful. Uh, in the past, when I've talked about similar situations, I've quoted Shakespeare. This is Macbeth, Act 3, Scene 4. Macbeth, of course, had murdered Duncan and done other dreadful things. And he said, I'm in blood, stepped in so far that should I wade no more, to return would be as tedious as go ah. And that was David's attitude. And so he added murder to his list of offences against God. And you may have noticed that it wasn't merely Uriah who died. Other soldiers died as well. You see, David was on a downward spiral of sin. And the more he went on, the more difficult it was to break out of that spiral. And, and sadly, during the course of my career, I've come across a number of people who've been in similar situations for various reasons. They've done something wrong, maybe innocently, maybe negligently or recklessly, maybe deliberately, but rather than admitting it, 
they've tried to cover it up, hidden it from their colleagues uh, or, or others. They've lied. They've then moved on possibly to destroying documents or forging other documents, committing fraud, or even blaming other people wrongfully for things in order to deflect blame for themselves. And all the while, they've been destroying themselves. Certainly spiritually, and in many cases mentally, and even physically, sometimes through the medium of drink or drugs. Now look, I hope there is no one here today who is in that downward spiral. But, but if I'm wrong, if anyone here is there, please speak to another Christian. Speak to a Christian friend or acquaintance or pastor, perhaps Eddie, today about it. Because as David found, by God's grace, there is a way out of that spiral. We're going to be looking at it in three weeks' time. But we all need to remember that there is a way out. But by God's grace, there is only one way out. Unfortunately, once again, David wasn't ready to take it. He wasn't ready to try to break out of that spiral. But you see, initially, from David's point of view, it looked as though the scheme had worked. Uriah was killed. David was able to take uh, Bathsheba as his wife, an act, incidentally, which involved breaching another of God's commandments, because the rules for the kingship prohibited the king from having multiple wives, and David already had ten or so of those. Yes, so it did appear that it had worked, and doubtless it was only Joab who noticed the sickening hypocrisy in what David said about the battle in which Joab, in which Uriah was killed. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. Now, our Bible translators have given us there an interpretation of the original. They haven't given us a literal translation. What the Hebrew says is that the, David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this be evil in your sight. Now that should have reminded Joab, and indeed David himself, that uh, the, this was not the end of the matter. The matter couldn't be regarded as being closed. Who gave David the right to say what was and what was not evil? Only God has that right. And ultimately, it was only God's view of what had occurred that really mattered. And we learn about that view right at the end of chapter 11. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Again, that's not a literal translation. What the Hebrew says is, but the thing David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. In other words, it uses exactly the phrase that David used 
when talking to the messenger. You see, David may or may not have regarded what he had done as evil. And we don't know whether Joab took or did not take David's advice not to regard it as evil. But it was evil in the sight of God. And in three weeks' time, we're going to be looking at the implications of that. But for now, in closing, let's just turn the spotlight back on us. We need to examine ourselves. And we need honestly to assess whether we have, whether we are, seriously breached God's law whether we are involved in self-justification or, or, or belittling what we've done. We need to check whether or not we have been involved in cover-ups. And above all, we need to check whether we are in this downward spiral of sin. And we need to repent and turn back to God accordingly. And as we do that, we need to remember that human evaluations are beside the point. Our own evaluations, indeed the evaluation of the whole of society, is ultimately beside the point. What matters is what's evil in the sight of God. Amen.